Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. everyone go ahead and make your way in if you would please we're going to start our call to worship this morning is found in psalms chapter 84 and we're going to read verses 8 through 12 where the psalmist writes O lord god of hosts hear my prayer give ear O god of jacob selah behold our shield our god look on the face of your anointed for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. And I pray that that's your prayer today, that you trust in the one who gives us all things. Lord, I pray that you just join with us this morning. Thank you for an opportunity to come before you and to lift up your praises. Lord, may we glorify you and focus on you with all that we have. We pray this in the name of your Son. And God's people said, I pray that today that you will realize that all you have is Christ. Anything else is meaningless. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, opened his mouth and taught them, said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Father, how wonderful are your thoughts towards us. You are a mighty God who grants all that we need. In love, you saved us even when we were in open rebellion against you. You have shown kindness and patience when we deserved none. We join together with all the saints this morning to sing that you are worthy of all glory, power, and honor. And we pray that your name may be lifted up this morning. We confess this morning as a body that we are guilty of disobedience and selfishness. Our hearts betray our fleshly desires to seek out our own good. We have not always thought of others and loved them as you have directed us. All of our works are tainted by sin. We have sought self-improvement instead of Christ-centeredness. Hear our cry and send the Holy Spirit to convict us, to lead us, and empower us to focus our hearts on your command. But Thanksgiving, we lift up this prayer for you have heard our cry. Though we may feel a lull alone at times, we know that you have never forsaken us. To those that you have called, you have justified. And we put our hope in the future glorification when all things will be made new. And we humbly ask that you join us this morning as we sing, pray, listen, and preach your word. Strengthen us for the battle with sin and encourage us with your word. Enrich our hearts this morning and prepare us for the work that you have ordained for us to accomplish through your Spirit. 
We pray this in the name of Jesus, the name above every name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Join with us in Galatians chapter 2 as we continue. And I think we close out this chapter of Galatians, I believe. As we look at Galatians chapter 2, 15 through 21. How is one made right with God? We've been looking at this past few weeks is that we're to cling to the gospel of Christ as we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Paul exhorts us to accept no substitutes. However, we have found that many today have accepted a different gospel. Today we're going to come to the conclusion of Paul's defense of his message and the accusation that he is a man-pleaser or men-pleaser. The Judaizers who oppose Paul's message salvation by grace through faith, have accused him of watering down or compromising God's command, the message of salvation, by making it easier for people to enter into God's family. For centuries, the Jews have been taught that they must observe all of the law to be considered faithful to be part of God's family. The law was comprised of 613 commandments to follow some or something, excuse me, not some, but something that even Peter said was a yoke and a burden to the people. And Paul's message was radically different than that of the Old Covenant. He was preaching that both Jew and Gentiles had only to exercise faith in the works of Christ rather than their own own personal works to be accepted into God's family. To the Judaizers, They believed that it was not enough to put one's faith in Christ. In respect, many of these Judaizers said that was okay, but you must add something else. So it's not enough to put one's faith in Christ, but that it was imperative to continue to observe the law, whether you were Jew or Gentile, especially in the dietary laws and in circumcision. The Judaizers were traveling to all of the churches, Gentile churches, causing trouble, demanding observances of the law, introducing doubt into the body, and leaving division in their wake. And that's why we find ourselves as Paul is trying to encourage and instruct these churches. In this letter to the churches of Galatia, Paul is confronting both the troublemakers and his church with the error of abandoning the gospel of Christ. In our study the last few weeks, we have read Paul's defense of of his seeking the approval of man rather than by God, by declaring that he is a servant of God, and he serves and only preaches the message that Christ gave him. And he's only the faithful in that his message is not his or somebody else's, but one that he received from Christ personally. He first reminded them of his personal testimony as a zealous Jew. He was a Pharisee that was totally devoted to God and the law. His devotion led him to hate the message of Christ and Christians. His devotion to God was so zealous that he eagerly sought out Christians in order to persecute them and destroy this upstart sect. However, in a supernatural encounter with Christ himself, Christ repurposed his devotion. Paul's eyes were open to the truth of Christ and the gospel. It was not a message of man that he was proclaiming, 
but the very words of Jesus. There was no logical explanation for Paul's change of heart and mind other than a supernatural encounter. There was no logical explanation for him to leave the law and go to the gospel rather than it was a supernatural encounter. He then testified that after 14 years after that spiritual encounter, he met the disciples, the, the apostles of Christ, and shared how God had, was using his message and his ministry. The disciples we saw in chapter 1 or chapter 2 received him gladly and confirmed that God's hand and grace was upon Paul as it was on Peter, and they gave him the right hand of fellowship. You might remember that phrase, which designated friendship and partnership. They saw no problem or difficulty with Paul's message. Lastly, this is what we looked at last week, and we're going to finish off this week. Paul writes of his confrontation with Peter. Peter, during a visit to Paul's home church in Antioch, was engaged in hypocrisy when he succumbed to the peer pressure of Judaizers in fear and stopped eating with the Gentile believers. Paul pointed out to Peter that by doing so, sent a wrong message and harmed the gospel of Christ. And we shared how we have to realize that is that the way that we live out the gospel implications can either benefit or harm the gospel that we're teaching. Peter, by removing himself from eating with the Gentile believers, was suggesting that the law was still necessary to live in a way that pleases God. Today, Paul concludes his discourse with Peter in asking the question, how does one made right with God? How does one become made right with God? And Father, as we ask that question, we've answered it many times over the years here. But Father, we need to be reminded of this, for we, like Peter, many times abandon the true gospel in our living. Maybe not in our knowledge, but in our living. And we must recognize, Father, that the way that we live our lives speaks volumes of the gospel. So, Father, open our hearts and our minds to your word this morning. May we see it with new eyes. Father, help me as I speak. Let me speak words that are edifying. Let us determine the words that are from you and the words that are man's. And Father, would you just begin the work in our heart. We plant this very deep. Let it grow. Let it produce fruit. We pray this in your name. Amen. The theme today is that right standing, a right standing with God, does not come by keeping the law but only through faith through Christ. Let me say that once again. A right standing with God does not come by keeping or observing the law, but only through faith in Christ. That's the theme that Paul has been unpacking here in these two chapters. And I want to give you just three things this morning to help us to understand exactly what Paul is trying to share here. So let's go with number one as we look at verse 15. Is we see that neither birth nor obedience to the Mosaic law makes one right before God. That's one, not on. I left on a vowel. I can buy one now. But neither birth nor obedience to the Mosaic law makes one right before God. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. Paul continues to write, to say, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith 
in Jesus Christ, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul and Peter here are Jews by birth. As Peter is probably, this is part of the conversation that's continuing here. Paul and Peter are stating the most obvious, that they are both Jews by birth. And they are included into the covenant with God by their ethnicity, by their nationality, by their birthright. Paul will use, probably uses this phrase, we are Jews by birth and not, by gent- or not Gentile sinners, to express a common ground as he's trying to share with Peter, Peter, you're wrong, you're in sin, you're standing condemned. He's using it to express the common ground they have, as well as to point out the futility of man in trying to live out the law, or to live by the law. Both Paul and Peter are now aware that being Jewish grants no saving privileges. That's what he means when he says is that that person is not justified by works of the law. It's not by our birthright. It's not by our, by our, our nationality, which again, this is a radical message that's different than what many have believed the Old Testament was preaching and teaching. To them, the dietary laws, as we looked at last week and the week prior, the circumcision, that inaugurated, brought someone in the family of God, and that would be the only way to have a relationship with God. But Paul and Peter have a different message in which those things are not necessary to be part of God's family. Paul and Peter are now aware that being Jewish grants no saving privileges, as the old covenant is insufficient to save anyone. A Christian is one who knows, and I put that in quotes as he says, it's somebody who knows that a person is justified by faith in Christ. The word justify refers to God's verdict of not guilty in the day of judgment. We've seen this phrase before. We've preached on it and taught on it. It's when God declares us righteous, though it's important to note that this phrase does not mean that it makes us righteous. God does not make us righteous. Many times you hear people say that justification is, 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 it should be defined as just as if we never sinned. And I can understand the concept, but that's not really the concept because you and I must realize that we are sinners, that we were sinners, that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. However, He has declared us righteous. He hasn't made us righteous. Now, if God was taking my counsel, I would have said, could you just make us righteous at the same way? Anybody else would like that? Wouldn't it be nice not to have any sin, to be perfect, to just be you know, saved and then that's it, and then all of a sudden life is just perfect. But it doesn't happen that way. At least this side of Joel Olstein doesn't happen that way. But as we see there is the word justified means that we're declared righteous by God, not made righteous. And when Paul uses the phrase, the works of the law, that no one is justified by the works of the law, he's referring to the deeds demanded by the Mosaic law. And what he's really saying is, observing the Mosaic law will not make you right with God. It will not justify you. It will not say, you may have been guilty, but now I overlook that. Paul, in essence, is saying to Peter that it's senseless to expect others to do what you cannot do yourself. In the passage we read earlier in Psalms 143 that Dustin read, 
King David himself admits that it cannot be done when he writes, Enter not into your judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Even the most ardent, zealous uh, follower of the law finds himself guilty. In our Sunday school class, we've been looking at this at, uh, from a different portion in Romans, in which Paul again is pointing out the, the, the insufficiency of the law to save. For we find that the law cannot save us. The law cannot make us holy. And the law can't deliver us from sin. So three times Paul states in different ways in these two verses that we're not justified by works. He is redundant in order to emphasize the point that only trusting in the work of Christ on our behalf can we be made right with God. So it's not by works of law that makes one right, but it's by the work of Christ. So neither birth nor obedience to the Mosaic law makes one right before God. And Paul is stating out, Jews are not exempt from that else. There is no saving privileges in being a Jew. The second one that we want to look at here is that we've died to the demands of the law. We have died to the demands of the law and are made alive in Christ. Look at verse 17. For he goes on, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? That's a good question. Certainly not, he says. For if we rebuild what I tore down, I proved myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. In verse 17, Paul writes that both of them as Jews are shown to be sinners before God. Just like the Gentiles, because they sought out the righteousness in Christ. In other words, themselves, by abandoning, observing the law and seeking out Christ, are declaring that, yeah, we're sinners just like Gentiles. We, too, need the gospel. That's what he says there. In other words, they realized the futility of the law and sought out forgiveness in Jesus. They, too, claim that there's no saving in the, in the Old Testament law. Vincent Chung, a commentator, writes concerning this word sinners. He says it's used for those who do not follow the Jewish laws and customs. In other words, the Judaizers were saying that the Gentile Christian believers, even though that they were following Christ, were still sinners and disobedient because they were not following the law. And they were saying, Paul and Peter, if you do not follow the law, then you are sinners. And the objection is, is that if Christ instructs men to stop observing the law, then it seems to follow that Christ encourages them. Hence why he says, is Christ an assert of sin? And Paul is saying, God forbid, no way, certainly not. There's no way in any essence that Christ is sin or evil. The doctrine of justification by faith permits the Gentiles to remain as sinners and even Jews to become the same. An extension of this objection, again, as the Judaizers are looking at Paul and Peter, they would say that the justification by faith promotes a lawlessness, or what we say is a liberty to continue to live in your sin. In other words, the charge of the Judaizers is that if you preach that a man is made righteous before God solely because of the work of Christ and not your own works, then it appears to permit or encourage 
someone to live any way they want. And to continue in sin and still be saved. However, you and I know that's all is not speaking here. And that's what Paul is, is, is arguing against. He answers these accusations by writing that he has died to the law. And Paul describes this death in a letter to Romans. Now, for those of you who have been in Saint school, this, this portion of Scripture is going to be very familiar. But take your Bibles real quickly to Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, in the first six verses, Paul is echoing here in Romans what he's trying to share with the Galatians. In Romans chapter 7, he says, Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Look at verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you have also have died to law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we might serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. And the era, what he's saying here, is the era of the law had ceased with the death and resurrection of Christ. In other words, there was a time in which we died to the law when we were given into Christ. And now we no longer are bound to those external commands of the law or trying to work through them to find salvation. The era of the law had ceased. Now there is a new calling through death to serve another, which leads us to the third point, which is we now have a different motivation for living. We have died to the demands of the law and we're made alive to Christ and now we have a different motivation for living. In verse 19 he says, through the law I died so that I might live to God. He continues in verse 20, very famous portion of scripture. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So here we see two things. And if you can imagine here, the law and the cross, these two things stand. Old covenant, new covenant. Both have purposes in what they, and why they were created and why were they were giving. And Paul writes of the before and the after in regard to the new age of redemptive history. I want to share something that comes from the uh, ESV Study Bible. And I want to just read it if you just bear with me. It's called God's Plan for History. Listen to what he writes. He says, The Bible has made it clear that God has a unified plan for all of history. By the way, on Thursday nights in our small group, we've been seeing what that plan is in the Gospel Project. And that plan has an ultimate purpose, which is a plan for the fullness of time. And that is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, to praise of God's glory. God had this plan even from the beginning. 
as he writes, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the beginning from the end and from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purpose. The Bible tells us that when the fullness of time come, when the time, when the moment was appropriate in God's plan, God sent forth His Son, Jesus, born of a woman, born of the law, to redeem those who were under the law. God's plan to unite all things included the law so that it could expose sin and reveal it, reveal to us what sin was and who God was and how perfect He was. But then when the fullness of time came, God brought in Christ. And the work of Christ on earth, and especially His crucifixion and resurrection, is the climax of history. And you and I must recognize that. For you and I, we look back towards the cross. To those in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to that cross. The great turning point in which God actually accomplished the salvation that he, history had been moving throughout the Old Testament. We saw the promise first in Genesis chapter 3 when he gave it to, uh, to Adam and Eve. The present era here looks back on Christ's completed work, but also looks forward to the consummation of his work when Christ will come again and there will appear a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And that's the era 2,000 years ago that Paul is writing to them. There were the Judaizers who were looking back at still at the law. And Paul is saying, that is no longer applicable for us to come before God. It will not make us right to God. It never has. It never has the ability to do so. The unity of God's plan makes it appropriate for him to include promises and predictions and fulfillments. And that's what he's given him throughout the time. The law was one of those stalwarts. We are now called to live our lives in the shadow of the cross. Paul's new life is now not marked by a zealous devotion to the law, but by a zealous devotion to Christ. And Paul is calling them to see that. Hence his testimony is so powerful. I once was a persecutor of the church. I once was zealous for God. All of that was true, but yet he saw the futility and the error of that passion. He now responds not to the devotion to the law, but he now responds to Jesus' devotion to us. I love what he says there. I no longer live for myself, but I now live for the one who gave himself for me. You see, he loved and gave for us. Jesus was obedient. He came and lived 33 years in this life putting up with the demands of not only the law, but also just the imperfection of the human body, of the flesh. Not that he was imperfect in any way, but he had to deal, he had to be, he had to, he had to be limited by the flesh. And all that that entails. Christ came and became a substitution for us. For me, he suffered through that. And you may say, well, what's the problem with Peter? What did he do that was so wrong? How did he abandon the gospel? Why is Paul continuing on this? Was well, Paul is trying to re-instruct Peter here, or Peter, and says, you've erred in this way, you've gone astray, you've become a hypocrite, 
and you've drawn others into your hypocrisy. You see, Peter's unintended message was that the Gentiles must keep the law to be right with God. And was leading them back into what we would call slavery. To go back to observing the law rejects God's grace. And to revert back to the law is to reject the work of Christ. And I submit to you that many of us have done the same thing. We reverted back to works. And we rejected the grace of God. A friend of mine today wrote on his Facebook, it was kind of interesting, he wrote this today. And he wrote concerning this passage. He said that Paul says that the life which we now live in the flesh, we live by the faith of the Son of God. Galatians 2.20. He goes on to write personally, he says, I live this life not due to my own faithfulness, but due to His faithfulness. It is His faith that never wavers, while mine will shift from time to time. Do you find yourself in that type of way? Yeah, definitely, right? He says, thank God that Jesus is faithful. If it was about my devotion to Him, it would not be grace. It is His devotion to me that is my every reflection. So I would encourage you here, this is what Paul was trying to instruct Peter. Peter, you taking your eyes off the ball. You are nullifying the very grace of God that you and I are teaching and preaching. It is that grace of God that we've been preaching teachings that led us into persecution, that have led us to be in prison and to many to death. Taking your eyes off of that. Peter, because of his fear, because of peer pressure, was leading others down the wrong track. He might have been teaching the right thing, but his life was leading to a whole different way. And that's the implication I want to ask today for you and I. Are you living out the implications of the gospel? Have you died to trying to work your way into God's good graces? Even if that was possible. Are you living out your devotion to the one who loved and gave himself for you? You see, your life speaks volumes to those who need the gospel. There are some of you today who are living your life as if you still need to work your way to heaven. I've got to be right. I've got to always be right. And so you set up these standards that become so impossible. And when you fail time and time again, it leads you to hopelessness and it leads you to despair. And you're wondering, oh, I just don't know how I can do it. We've all been there. But that's not what God has called you to. God has called you to the one who's completed and done all things. There is only one who was able to do the law completely and perfectly. And that's Christ. And that's what it means when he says our union in Christ. Jesus did what I could not do. He provided what God required for me in my place, for my substitute. So there's some of us that may teach the gospel, may know the gospel, but yet our lives we teach something much different. But it's also sad to say there's some of you who may know the gospel, and you may even use the gospel correct in presenting to others, but yet your life leads them a whole different way. Because in your life, in your real life, you live yourself as, hey, I've got my get-out-of-hell-free card, and you live your life any old way you want. You feel there's no standard. 
If you're made with right, then I can sin and do whatever I want. And your life is leading others astray. For they feel that there's a cheap and free gospel out there. That's not the gospel that God gave us. It's not the gospel of Christ. For the gospel does compel us to live out our lives in a way that shows God's grace. Yes, there is salvation. There is forgiveness of sin. But yet, that comes with living our lives in a new way. We are married to another one. There are some people here today, or I should say there's some people that should be here today that are not. Because even though they claim the gospel, their life is not matching up with the gospel implications. And it's created problems in their marriages. It's created problems with their children. It's created problems at work. It's created problems in their community. In the same way, there's some of us that have done it by keeping these standards, by making people toe the line to the point that they're totally put off of the gospel. Are you living out the implications of the gospel? Don't abandon it at any cost. So a quote by William Grinnell. He says, We must come to good works by faith and not to faith by good works. In other words, you and I need to do good works. God has called us. He says that we're saved to do good works and we're to provoke one another to good works. But yet, we come to those good works knowing that they have no saving principles in themselves. But trusting that we do go to those good works because God has called us by faith to do so. And not to faith by good works. Would you understand that today? That's the gospel that you and I need to be sharing. Father, we come before you this morning and we just ask for your strength and your, your gospel to come and just live out in our lives. This is a uh, portion of Scripture that sometimes can be difficult in the fact that we just want to just read right through it as, as problems between two people that have nothing to do with us. But Father, I pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds to see the ways in which we are abandoning the true gospel either in our knowledge, either in our teaching, or maybe in the way that we live it out. Father, I pray that we would see ourselves as crucified with you, and the life that we now live, may it be in you, in faith in you. We pray for the strength of you. So we hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.